Hey everyone, welcome back to SEL Convergence. Today's guest is going to be a familiar voice, someone we've heard from before, but we still have a lot to learn from. Tom, who are we welcoming back today? Mike, thank you so much. I appreciate your introduction, and I always appreciate your producing and and really keeping us on track, my friend. I am so thrilled again to have our dear friend, Julia Skolnick with us. I am still quoting you from the summer, Julia. Wherever I go, I quote you, my friend. I'm so overjoyed to have you. And the topic that you are bringing us tonight, as I said, in my geek bucket, I'm just so, so overjoyed about this. So listen to this, my friends, six gears for learning and leadership framework, six gears for learning and leadership framework. So Julia, take us back, bring us into your thought process. Absolutely. Tell, tell us where this with germinated from. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom, you're so kind. Thank you so much for having me back. I really love our conversations to geek out together about the science <laughs> of learning and education. Um, So for context, uh, I'm the chief learning officer and founder of Professional Learning Partnerships. We transform learning and leadership through the power of brain science. And we do that in partnership with school districts and educational organizations to make brain science real for them uh, and interpret it in ways that can help them advance their practice. And so living the science of learning, not just talking about it, I think that's you know, how I want to be an authentic professional learning facilitator is to try to think about how to make that learning memorable. I really want the learning for adults to stick. I don't want it to be something that they sit through and then forget immediately. So as I'm trying to think about how to make this tangible, digestible, memorable, I wanted to come up with a sticky framework that would help people visualize what we're talking about. something we can come back to every time we meet Um, And it's a way to bring really complex science, whether it's neuroscience, cognitive science, psychology, uh, educational research into something that we can talk about, reference, and feel like we understand a little bit. So that's where the six gears for learning and leadership kind of comes into play. So I'm looking at our notes, but I want our listeners to really get an in-depth experience of these six gears. And as I'm I'm looking at this, they really, for me, interface with social-emotional learning strongly. They absolutely do. And I think I'm a fan of small numbers of things. There's science to support that as well. Three is one of my go-to numbers for trying to have things be manageable. Um, so it was hard to squeeze all of learning science into three gears. So I have two groups of three, um, and we'll, we can break those down, um, now. So the way I like to think of the six is three of them are social and emotionally oriented. Three of them are cognitively oriented, but the gear characterization of each of these six elements demonstrates how interlocking they all are. So our six gears model is actually a graphic that moves because I think that's fun and I geek out about that kind of stuff. Um, But you can see each of these six elements interlocking with each other. And in professional learning, we talk about the relationship between Mm -hmm. each of these six. So I'll, I'll introduce them now. The social emotionally oriented gears we talk about, which are fundamental needs for human beings, whether you're a student or a teacher or adult, you know, working in any capacity are trust, agency, and passion. 
And on the cognitive side, thinking about three characteristics, um, three gears that should go into any experience, whether it's learning or work related, is that it should be memorable, meaningful, and motivational. So those are the six that we talk about. And they're so meaty. There's so much research that goes into each of those. Um, but those are the pillars that we continue to come back to in our professional learning, whether it's for teachers or for administrators. So I want to dig a little deeper into each of the six. Before I do that, you've already said something that fascinates the heck out of me. <laughs> so you said, if I caught it correctly, learning science likes small numbers. That's my take on it, is that the, it's like cognitive load theory that as soon as we get too much information, we're gonna lose it. Um, and I can't remember who I heard this quote from, but if you have too many priorities, you have none at all, uh, is something that has really stuck mm -hmm. with me from the leadership perspective, is that we as human beings, our memory capacities are meant to hold on to a small number of salient things, unless they're connected back into our long-term memory. And there are a lot of tips and tricks, and teachers know these because they're, they do them really well, um, the things that get memories to stick longer. However, if we introduce a really long list of things to hold on to, we're tapping into our working memory, which has only a small capacity to hold on to those things. So I'm a big fan of the number three. It feels like not too few, not too many um, to be able to actually remember those. I love it. And and every time we speak, it, it taps into my everyday experience. So I was working with a school district about an hour north from where I live. And today I talked about, we need to have only three or four ground rules for our classroom, or otherwise they won't remember them. They're meaningless. I completely agree with you. I think that was so smart. And, you know, not to worry anyone who says, well, I have all of these agenda items, they all have to fit in. Chunking or grouping under an umbrella heading is also a great strategy for memory. So if there are three categories of rules or three categories of objectives, as long as you can bring them back to a smaller number of ideas, it has a better chance of, of sticking in people's memories. Thank you, Julia. So we let's dig in a little deeper. Now we know that with folks like yourself and Mike and I, we could do this all day long, but we'll, 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 we'll chunk it a little bit. So let's start with trust. And, and I would offer, and I please, if I'm incorrect, you tell me, it all begins with trust. I'm on the same page as you. And I think, so backing up just a tiny bit to this framework and then getting into trust, it, it was really important to me to have the same elements apply to students and to teachers and adults mm -hmm. from this learning and leadership lens, because we're all human beings. Mm -hmm. And I know we've talked about that every time we meet is that we want to think of all the ways we're different from kids as adults and kids learn this way, adults learn this way. When you look at the science of what drives us as human beings, we may be less developed as kids, more developed as adults, but those drivers are very common to us as human beings. And so something that really interests me and what drives my passion for this work is bringing that science of human nature into our practice as educators and leaders because we've, we're like missing the boat a little bit. If we, if we think about all the small details of how we're gonna frame our work or our learning and we forget to look at the big picture of human beings sitting in front of us. Mm -hmm. So when we now go back into the science of trust, 
it's talking about these very fundamental structures in our brain when we think about that limbic system uh, that's tied in with our emotional regulation, our fight, flight, or freeze mode in our amygdala. When we don't feel safe, this is what the research shows us, when we don't feel trust with others around us, that sends threats. You know, it, it gives that trigger to our amygdala that we don't feel safe. We're going to get more in our survival mode and react more emotionally. And learning really high order thinking skills, cognitive challenges are not going to be possible when we don't have that essential element of trust. Um, and I know you have introduced me to the fantastic work of Dr. Paul Zak. Um, I had the chance to talk with him about his oh, research, and he wonderful. is just one of the nicest people. You and he are like two peas in a pod, by the way. I think <laughs> you should you. connect with him. Um, but his research is so fascinating because it's looking at the neuroscience of trust, which is pretty rare as far as this research goes. And he looks at elevated levels of oxytocin in our brain when we feel trust, which is that chemical, it's the bonding chemical associated with, you know, when newborns are held by their parents and oxytocin flowing through your brain. So there's actually a chemical um, support mechanism for trust that helps calm our brains down, triggers more empathy, allows us to, to feel more safe and learn better. So I'm going to imagine those first, first few weeks of school, we really need to do everything possible to build that emotional safety, to build that trust. I could not agree more with you, Tom. It is such an important opportunity at the beginning of a learning relationship or a work relationship too. When you think about a new manager or a new supervisor mm. and a staff person to get to know each other personally. Mm. Um, I've heard times throughout my career where people say, you should just trust me <laughs> from the beginning of a relationship. Like, let's just start with trust. <laughs> and I find that so funny because, yeah, we want people to trust us. We know we're trustworthy, but trust is earned. It's not yeah. something that is just given. And so thinking proactively about how you're going to earn trust, both as a teacher to student and also for leader to staff person, mm -hmm. takes time and effort and energy, but it has to be earned and it has to be built. I love that phrase, thinking proactively. So that mindfulness, that that preparation. And what it what it says to me as a leader or teacher to students, I really respect you. I honor you by thinking proactively. You're really valuable to me. I don't assume anything. Absolutely, yes. And it's about valuing the person, just like you said. It's not a data point. It's not a seat that's filled. It's a human being. Um, and so part of how I coach teachers and leaders to develop trust is through building caring relationships. And that comes directly from Dr. Zach's work and Brene Brown's work and so many people who are in the space of trust, um, is that you have to think about how to build a relationship with someone that's not just transactional or about what you expect from them academically or professionally. Um, showing vulnerability is actually one of the best ways to build trust because suddenly you can connect over that. You say, well, I'm a flawed human. I'm a flawed human. <laughs> and you see what you have in common yeah. or sharing personal stories for teachers kind of let students see, oh my gosh, my teacher's a person. We have something in common and the relationship can grow from there. I'm real. I'm transparent. Yes. Exactly. 
so so let's take a, a, another step into your gears and the word is agency now i've been teaching almost 50 years and really only until the past 10 have i started to hear this word agency clearly not as a place i go an agency but something within me so would you help us first of all let's dig into the definition Mm-hmm, absolutely. So the way that I define agency is the ability to act upon your own choices. So it's that freedom to make choices coupled with the empowerment to act and to make it possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you look at the literature on this, I would say the psychology literature uses the word autonomy a bit more. So thinking about self-determination theory and how autonomy, um, relatedness, and competence are those three essential needs that we have as human beings. So I think there is that essential need for freedom, but where I think agency is a more accurate term for the need in schools and in um, working roles is that it's not enough to feel as though you have freedom. You have to have support within your system to actually make meaningful choices and decisions that impact your future trajectory. So sometimes I like to call this like the anti-robot gear. If you think you're, if you feel as though you're a robot in a classroom, just doing what everybody else is doing, Mm. you don't have a personal element in choices to make your learning feel your own. You don't have that ownership or teachers often feel like a robot. I'm just given this curriculum. I'm supposed to turn it around. They don't want to know my opinion and kind of go through the motions that's a person who doesn't have a lot of agency and it makes our brains kind of recoil at that. Like that's not something that works well with our evolution. We want to be able to make meaningful choices and our brains actually feel good. We have dopamine flowing through our reward circuits when we have control. And that leads to a whole host of other different good outcomes Mm -hmm. for us. If I'm not mistaken, our country was founded on wanting ownership. Beautiful example. I couldn't agree more. And actually what's really interesting, I have always found this to be interesting about education is when you put the cultural lens on top of it. um, And I'm thinking about Zaretta Hammond's work, culturally Mm -hmm. responsive pedagogy. Mm -hmm. When you compare individualistic cultures with collectivist cultures, this conversation can take a different turn because I agree in America and in our capitalistic individualistic society, Agency is essential to us feeling that we have purpose, um, to be able to fulfill whatever our direction is. That learning may look different when we're thinking about multiple different cultures that value success of the group differently than the success of the individual. The the book Sapiens, if you've had a chance to read it, uh, goes into this idea. Give us, uh, I think the author's name is Harari. Ooh, Uh, I have to read that. It's a New York Times bestseller. Uh, it's called Sapiens. And of course, it's about us and, and where, where we began. It's fascinating. Fast. I think you would love it. That sounds awesome. So, so we have trust and we have agency. And uh, for our listeners, visualize these gears are moving and connecting together. And then on the social emotional side, you have probably one of my favorites, passion. And, and if, if we're not showing up with passion, I'm not sure why we're showing up. I really agree with you, Tom. And, you know, one of my challenges that I've had in translating important research to practice in science of learning is there are so many important areas 
But the reason I chose trust, agency, and passion, at least for this moment in time, I'm sure it'll evolve. I feel as though passion is really lacking from education. And when we think about um, the reason to be in school, the reason to learn is to help excite, inspire us to want to learn more, to change the world, to become more of a self-sufficient individual. And so when we think about all of these extrinsic motivators like grades or discipline or things like that, it's not cultivating passion. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so much literature that shows that the most successful people in their careers have this burning passion inside them that's been sparked, whether it's by a teacher or an out-of-school time experience. I want to see more of those opportunities in schools for kids and also leaders. When you tap into your staff's passions or give them space to pursue their passion at work, my gosh, the results are going to be sky high. I agree. And something just struck me. So as you were describing earlier, if I'm an educator and I do not feel a sense of agency, why will I be passionate? Exactly. They completely tie into one another. And what's so interesting, this is where the motivational gear comes into play too, is that the research shows that agency and passion, so associating things we really care deeply about and feeling empowered to pursue that leads to stronger intrinsic motivation, which is that motivation that comes from within. You feel rewarded by the activity itself, more of an internal locus of control, meaning that we feel that our actions determine what happens to us. Mm. Um, And for the professional sphere, um, better job satisfaction. But what's interesting is when you take the agency away, all of those things flip opposite. So you lead to more extrinsic motivation, which is short-term learning, poor mental health, less creativity, external locus of control, feeling like you don't like learned helplessness. I'm not really making choices that influence my future and then lack of job satisfaction. So it's very much tied into those outcomes. It's fascinating to me. And and this is probably for another discussion. If we do not have passion and we do not have agency, that reminds me that there are some pretty stale classes going on out there. Yes. And I, I, I spend all my life championing educators and my sense is educators are ready. They're wanting to be passionate. They want a sense of autonomy and agency. So all of my, all of my leaders listening to this uh, adult to adult, but also adult to student, maybe schools shouldn't look exactly the way they've looked for my lifetime. I would agree with you. I really think we have to ask big questions about why school looks the way it does. Um, And when you study the history of education, as so many of us have, we realize that the decisions to structure school the way it is today was not based on science of learning and was not based on how we are most engaged. There was a societal need. Um, Parents had to work. And so there's all these different factors that have created school to be the way it is. But another element I think that I find really interesting in helping schools scale professional learning or curriculum, whatever it may be, is this balance of fidelity and flexibility. And that's something that I've learned about and experienced in my days working in museums and trying to scale education programs nationally and feeling this tug between 
wanting to have some essential elements be consistent throughout any kind of implementation because you need some kind of core commonality, but then you have to plan for adaptation and flexibility and figuring out how people are going to own it and make it theirs. So that's where I think curriculum and training and classroom lessons and, and instruction maybe needs a little bit more of that flexibility. How are we going to clearly show teachers, these are your choices to make. Whatever you choose, we, we believe in you, we trust you, we give you agency. And then the same with the students. This is what the teachers will decide, but these are all the laundry list of things the students get to decide. And then it begins to turn that gear of motivation. As you're speaking, one of the things I often hear now, two years into the pandemic, folks, I just wanted to go back to normal. And, and I'm saying, maybe not. Maybe in this great challenge, maybe the flip side is here's an opportunity. I, am, I really agree with you there. And I have used that word opportunity as well, because I think in any challenging situation, we have the opportunity to learn and grow, yeah. even if it feels painful to us at yeah. the time. But what I think the world has seen now through going through this pandemic and having such personal and professional challenges is that we can't escape social emotional well being, and nor should we. That is part of what makes us human. Um, and I know we've talked about this where we're feeling creatures that think. And I do an activity with teachers where they kind of map out what's happening in students' brains um, with rubber bands on a geo board, kind of thinking about what learning experiences lead to high engagement and low engagement. And one of the responses teachers say to me is, gosh, every experience the student has relates to feelings and pulls in their amygdala. And I said, yes, that's exactly right. Everything we do has a feeling component to it. And the more we embrace that as part of the learning process and establishing that safety so kids feel free to learn, safe to learn, it's okay to make mistakes and be vulnerable, that will make us better educators and it will make the learning richer. So I, I'm hoping that's the opportunity that we see now. I, I hope so too. Before we go further, Mike, I've got to bring you in here because I know that, that you are living these three principles so again, as a special educator, uh, what, what's, what's resonating with you? What's, what's kind of uh, lighting your fire? Uh, the biggest thing for me is being sort of familiar with some of these terms. Um, I think it's so important for educators to understand the concepts of it. So like Tom, the first thing you do with agency is you wanted to know like the definition. Mm -hmm. You wanted to understand what that meant. And I think that those, those words are such a powerful tool for educators because as soon as you start describing it, I'm thinking of teachers who have so much agency in their classroom, even sometimes to, to an unhealthy extent where the students have so much agency that it's, it's kind of gone a different direction. And someone walking to that classroom is going to see the chaos in it, but not understand that, that that teacher has a really powerful tool that they're utilizing in their classroom, but that it's just been used to an extreme extent. And I think it gets viewed negatively a lot of times when really it just needs to be kind of be reframed, restructured, and that the teacher oftentimes doesn't even know that they're doing it. 
So like, just, just to take that one as an example, it's, it's such a powerful thing and teachers don't always understand that they're using it. And when they don't understand that they are using it, they're not always using it effectively, which is a shame. So it's, it's that creating that awareness, I think is so important. If I can add on to that, that's really helpful to hear, Mike. And I think what that made me think of is trying to draw more parallels of understanding between teachers and administrators. Just like you said that, you know, if we know that um, engaging learning may look chaotic upon walking into it, then the more the administrator thinks about that ahead of time, or that's part of a walkthrough form, or it's part of a, an evaluation rubric to, to look for agency, then now everybody's on the same page and working toward the same goals. Mm-hmm. And it also goes back to what you said, Tom, about changing the way that schools look. Mm-hmm. Um, as a learning scientist, I would not want to walk into a classroom where I see 26 students being silent and listening to a teacher speaking, unless it's for three minutes max and then, or you know, if it's a secondary, maybe five minutes. But the idea is that the more we educate uh, leaders and teachers on what really activates people's brains, my hope is that some of these evaluation or observation measures start to shift more towards what high engagement looks like. So let's go to the other, the other three gears. The gears that in your notes make up the cognitive components. So we talk about the, the learning it needs to be memorable. It needs to be meaningful. It needs to be motivational. Start off, off with memorable. Mm-hmm. I think memorable might be one of my favorite topics because I think it really brings to a head where traditional education and learning science don't match up today. Um, so th- asking that question to teachers, what is the most memorable experience you could give your students? Mm. And it would not be reading from textbooks and it would not be doing a whole laundry list of math problems. It's really about the deeper engagement. It's multi-sensory. It's about depth over breadth. Um, It's about emotional connections and actually giving students more agency to figure things out on their own. Um, And one of my favorite researchers in this space, who I think does a great job translating neuroscience and and cognitive science to education is Dr. Barbara Oakley. Mm. She has a ton of books. Um, Her most recent one is the Uncommon Sense, Uncommon Sense Teaching. It's like a bright orange front. Um, But she makes a really good point in there that has stuck with me is that I'm, I'm paraphrasing her, but she says, we can't make connections in other people's brains they have to make their own connections. And if that's what learning is, which we know it is, it's neural connections in people's brains. As educators, it's not about giving them all the information and assuming or hoping that they figure it out or hold on to it. It's about carefully constructing these experiences where students have the best chance of syncing up those neural connections and having it actually mean something to them. So that's the science behind some of the memorable learning. And of course, it ties back into trust with that safety element. So if kids don't feel safe, if they feel threatened, whether it's socially, emotionally, physically, not much of that cognitive engagement is going to be memorable because it's not deemed as important enough in the hierarchy of the brain what it needs. Can you give our listeners one example of a memorable learning experience? 
Sure. I think that is challenging when you're thinking about K-12 and every discipline that there may be. But I think a general principle I like to think about is the more the students do, the better. Okay. So if a teacher, just kind of like Mike alluded to, if the teacher can plant seeds of definitions of key vocabulary words or some common learning experience that grounds everybody in some prior knowledge or a world event, but then students have a lot of room to piece things together on their own, construct knowledge, talk to their peers, work collaboratively. Um, those are the kinds of experiences that are gonna activate kids' brains in all those different regions that are so important for forming memories. Um, as much active engagement as students can have, the more memorable it will be. So as we go to our, our, our next gear, meaningful, for, first of all, start me off with, Tell me the difference between memorable and meaningful. These three M's, as I call them, are so interlocking with each other. They all share some meaning with each other. It's a little hard to separate. But when I think about a professional learning experience that I create or an, um, a lesson that a teacher is creating, those three M's to me are the criteria mm. that I would want to see every learning experience hitting. So the meaningful piece to me, I think, speaks more to the connection to prior knowledge and experiences that a student or an adult has, and that the experience feels valuable to mm. that person. So when they walk away at the end of the experience, it sticks with them. It has value. It felt like it was worth their time. So the meaningful part almost kind of ties back to the why of the learning experience or the work, which then makes me think of, um, the start with why Simon Sinek's work, Sinek, which I think yeah. is really powerful too, especially for leaders. Do we do enough to communicate why we're learning about mm -hmm. something or why we are starting a new curriculum series or a new professional development series? Once we can explain and communicate the why and have it hopefully tie into common values or prior experiences, it then makes the experience more memorable. We're more motivated to participate, kind of, you know, fuels all the gears, if you will. And, and then again, we move to this piece, motivational. Um, some teachers might hear that and say, gee, I'm kind of introspective. I'm a bit shy. H how can I deliver something motivational? Mm, that's a great question. I like the way you put that. The way I define motivational when it comes into the um, group of this six is thinking about intrinsic motivation, mm -hmm. which is a piece that I really see missing generally in education and not every classroom. I think some teachers are phenomenal at intrinsically motivating kids, but on the broad scale, I think um, to prioritize kids caring about what they're learning about or giving them opportunities to connect what they're learning to new areas of interest and let them find some reward in the learning experience itself. Mm -hmm. I would love to see more of that in schools. Uh, and same for work. I think we don't, let me phrase it this way. When we look at learning science, it's a short-term strategy to tell someone they have to do something just because they have to do it. People may follow through um, it may get you a short way, but that's not a strategy that's going to lead to, to long-term satisfaction, high creativity, high quality work or learning. When we can find a way to connect with what people truly care about, and then this goes back with agency and passion, mm -hmm. 
that leads to better results. That's what the research would suggest. Um, I also want to tie in Angela Duckworth's literature on grit because um, her work, you know, when we think about grit, we think about perseverance and resilience. That's kind of the first word that might come to people's minds. But half of the equation for grit is passion and this motivation to actually that's the reason why we want to work hard and why we want to pursue is because we feel so driven and connected to some purpose. So I'd love to see more leaders and educators thinking about the precious time that we have with students and staff to figure out what motivates people, what gets them really excited. And that kind of drives the whole learning system almost more by itself, doesn't need as much driving from the, the external adults. I have a question and I'll, I'll preface it. It comes from a number of experiences these past two weeks where counselors and administrators from a variety of school districts have kind of said, ugh, I've just been put in charge of keystones. So again, I don't want to take us too far off track. As a learning scientist, do standardized tests have any part to play in what we're talking about tonight? Oh, goodness. I am not a fan of standardized tests. Um, and speaking from personal experience, how I felt about that as a student was so judged. And I felt so anxious about performance that I couldn't think straight. I don't know about the folks listening to this, but I knew I was not doing my best work in a, in a standardized test because it was so high stakes. And again, I think there's many more historical and financial factors that drive standardized testing as a fidelity measure when we were talking about that before. And so I don't have the answer that would take the place of that when it comes to government funding and regulation of, of progress. But I just think as human beings, we are way too complex to reduce to a number and a score. And, and where I really see that doing disservice is on our image of ourselves as learners. And there's so much research which shows that how we perceive ourselves as learners directly impacts how we achieve. And so if I could take that out and have everyone be uh, evaluated based on projects and their growth and their mindset about their work and how much fun they're having learning. To me, I think that makes, you know, better human beings. I'm not, I'm not sure there's that much value in these tests, but I'm not a policymaker and I'm not, I don't give out the money. So no, I, I don't want you to be a policymaker. I wanted you to speak as that learning scientist that I know and care about. It's yeah. interesting. As you spoke, uh, my wife is a retired uh, art teacher. And way back, way, way, way back, we've been married for 43 years. When I first met Sandra, her passion besides teaching was to help her students create or a portfolio to get into art school. And she said, Tom, every student, art, art student or not, needs a portfolio. And I said, yes, yes, that'll allow me to share all of my strengths, all of my challenges and show my growth for example, over four years of high school. It's so much more of an authentic measure of success, I think, to look at something where you've really invested a lot of thought and energy. Um, it's something that you care about, you put a lot of time into. To me, that's much more valuable 
in capturing somebody's contributions merits um, than a standardized test. Um, but I will say one of the things you were, I was thinking about when you were talking about getting new responsibilities or implementing new curriculum, another really important part of trust, I think from the leadership level is clear roles and responsibilities that each person has and expectations for that we have of each other in those leadership roles. And that's where I see a lot of trust breaking down is confusing and overlapping roles, um, not being able to set clear expectations, not knowing what the why is for having to get a new responsibility like rolling out a new curriculum or something like that. So there's an interesting area of trust, particularly for leaders when we're learning about that gear that comes with thinking of proactively, again, mm -hmm. about clarifying the vision, why you're doing what you're doing so that people are more motivated to want to work in that vein because they can connect the dots. I think a lot of times where staff feel, you know, lack of motivation is they're getting more and more work and don't understand why and what's being taken away so that they can give room for this piece. So the trust, I think it has a lot of depth when it comes particularly to leaders. So I'm very visual. And like your graphic, I'm watching in my mind all these gears interfacing and connecting. Can you share with our listening audience some, uh, some verbal form of that visual? For sure, yes. So I, I will say I'm very fortunate to work with a very talented designer. Her name is Bridget Indelicato. Um, and so I give her the credit for designing our graphic. Um, but the way we've laid it out is to group the three, trust, agency, and passion near one another, um, meaningful, memorable, and motivational together as well. But like we talked about early on, I do think trust is one of the fundamental gears when we talk about human nature and that survival mode versus feeling safe. So that's kind of at the, the head of this brain image that we have of these gears. And really what I think from there is once we feel safe, once a, a, an experience or the person with whom we're learning, we see that they care about us, we start to remember things more when we have an opportunity to be ourselves and bring ourselves into that work, that agency starts to turn, then we can bring our full selves and realize, well, what do I actually care about in this experience? And that's where the passion and the motivational gears really start to come into play too. But I think something that I hope people take away from this graphic and this framework is that when one gear stops, they all stop because it's a machine working Say together. Say that again. Mm -hmm. When one gear stops, they all stop. So wow. when we have something that makes us feel threatened and we've lost trust in our learning experience, memorable is going to come out of the equation. Motivation is going to come mm. out of the equation. So this is an ebb and flow kind of operation for us as human beings that we need to continue to put effort into making sure all of these gears are always moving. I, I, I need to keep asking so i'm sure i understand so and i i under so I, if i take trust out learning stops in my interpretation of the research i think yes i um, I, I would agree mm -hmm. I, I just I, I i never focused on the others also stopping but i i and i want our listeners to think about that please and and please email us 
I'd be happy to pass your emails on to Julia because this is really exciting and really important that we all continue to dialogue about. I would love that as well. And I think this is a living, breathing framework. So I expect that as science changes and research grows, this will evolve with it. But what I love to do with groups of teachers and administrators that I work with is ask them, which of these six gears do you feel is really important to you as a teacher and as a leader? How do you see these interactions? Because they're all open to interpretation. Mm. But what I think truthfully is that these are needs that we have as learners or as workers. And when those needs aren't fulfilled, everything kind of slows down and we can't do our best work. So as teachers and leaders, what I hope thinking about this framework helps solidify is what's really important to these human beings that we're trying to activate um, and where to put your energy so that they feel fulfilled, they feel motivated, they're going to do well in what we want them to do and maybe focus a little less on some of the tasks that we used to think are important, mm -hmm. but don't really drive those humans we're working with to want to succeed. I have an idea. You don't need to answer because I don't want to put you on the spot, but we have another public vehicle called a round table discussion. It's, it's an hour in the evening like this, and we, we open it up to, to anyone who wants to join us. And we know ahead of time that people are signed up. I think it would be fantastic if we could have this discussion about the six gears and, and listen and dialogue with educators like Mike who are in this every day. I would love to do that. I, I'm Beautiful. always eager to get feedback. And I think, you know, one of my main philosophies in professional learning is adapting this science to make sense for each individual person mm. and each individual district. And so I expect that people will have different perspective and different values. And some cultures may embrace these things and some cultures may not have the room for them. Mm. Um, and so I encourage that dialogue. Absolutely. Wonderful. We'll make that happen. So as we start to close up, I, I trust in your professional development work, in your coaching work, you're doing, working with the six gears now. Can you share yes. a little bit about how that looks? Absolutely. So I have a science of learning and leadership series that I offer and customize for each district, kind of depending on the time frame that we have or the number of sessions throughout a year. We start with a foundation of science of learning and or leadership with key ideas that you and I have discussed before. And then we start to dive into each of these gears. And the way I like to do it is not too fast and furious, because as we talked about before, we need to really go slow and discuss these and think about them. And we go through a process with each gear where we learn the science behind it. What does science tell us about why this is important? And then I have the educators or the administrators reflect, where does our practice align with this science? Where does it conflict with the science? And then what are some action steps that we want to take to try to improve this? And each district that I'm working with is in a different spot right now. Um, with one district in particular, there's been a lot of interest around trust because there are breakdowns at many different levels. And through our Think Tank Innovator program that we talked about in our last podcast, those teacher leaders are defining trust in a myriad of ways and owning it within each school building to partner with their administrators to talk about well, how do we want to choose to build this in our school? And so some of the teachers are doing grade-to-grade um, -grade buddy systems so that the school starts to feel connected to each other. 
Um, in other areas, teachers and administrators are having more honest conversations about the culture in the school and how teachers can feel more connected to each other. So it's a very much uh, driven by each group that we work with to really own how this gear plays out for them. Um, others were more heavy into the memorable gear right now and thinking about how do you design lessons to be more memorable for elementary or for high school? How does that tie into um, some of the pillars of professional learning? I'm thinking about Cherry Hill East that we're working with right now. They've been very intentional in three pillars that they've established that guide their learning and culture, which is belonging, learning is social and cognitive engagement. So we're using the science of memorable learning and trust to help propel those three pillars forward. It's incredible. No matter how tired I am after a day of work, I am so thrilled and so excited to be in your company and listen and learn from you, Julia. Please, oh, ditto, Tom. please remind our listeners how they can find you. Absolutely. And thank you so much. You inspire me always. So I'm so privileged really to have the opportunity to talk with you tonight and always. Uh, so we are Professional Learning Partnerships. Our website is learningpartnerships.org. Um, and we would love to connect with any teacher who's interested in applying key ideas from brain science to education. We lead lots of different professional learning services, all in the spirit of long-term partnerships. Beautiful. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much. Be well.